So, hey, uh, we've been going through this series, and our series has been asking the question, who's your one? And just kind of a recap, uh, every single one of us that are in this room has someone that has told us about Jesus, right? In fact, we could kind of look back through our life and say, you know what, there's this one person that invited me into relationship with Jesus. And it could be a pastor, it could be a friend, it could be a family member. Um, it, the thing is, though, this person has a name. And then we challenge you with, with, uh, with this idea that each one of us should have, within the rest of this year, one person with whom we're going to invite to a relationship with Jesus. One person that we are going to tell about the good news of Jesus. And so that got me thinking, and with a little bit of help of, from Google, I, I really asked the question, well, what is the value of one for example, what's the, the single most expensive man-made structure? Anyone know what it is? It's the International Space Station. It comes in at a price tag of $151 billion. Okay, how about this? What's the single most valuable natural diamond? Anyone know? It's called the Koh-i-Noor Diamond, and it's found in the crown jewels. So it's found in the crown that Queen Elizabeth wore. Uh, in fact, uh, we really don't know how valuable it is. We know how large it is, but we don't know how valuable it is because something about this diamond is that it's never been sold. It's only been stolen or given. And so there's actually no value uh, given to it. But what about you? What is the one thing to you that's extremely valuable? What is the one thing to you that is extremely valuable? Is it, is it maybe your home? Is it that, that home that you worked so hard to get, your dream home? Maybe it's that car. Maybe it's that, that vehicle that you had been saving or the one that you saw that you wanted since you were a little child. For me right now, it's one of those Broncos, one of those four-door Broncos, right? All the guys are like, yeah, that's my, that's right. It's kind of like the uniting thing about guys, right? Um, so here's the thing. Maybe it's a home, maybe it's something, maybe it's something that's actually priceless because it really doesn't have a whole lot of value except for who it came from. It's something that's been passed down from generation to generation. Maybe it's not even an item. For some, it's the family name. For even more, it's maybe a family member. And when you get down to it, though, the most valuable things in life, they actually have names. And those names, they have faces. And those faces, they're part of an extremely important story. Because those names that have faces and those faces that are part of a story is very much a very part of our personal lives. These people, this one, it, it's, it's personal. It's important. And so that's why we ask the question, who's your one? Who, who's your one? Who's the one that you've determined is valuable enough to share the good news of Jesus with this year? I think maybe another important question that we can ask, though, is how do we tell them? How, how do we tell our one? And for that, it takes intentionality. 
It, it takes an intentional movement towards them. It takes an in, intentional conversation. But more than that, it takes accountability. We need to be accountable. We need, we need to, someone that knows that we are doing this. We need a partner in the mission. We need to cheer one another on. And you say, hey, that sounds all great, intentional, accountable, wonderful. But how? The really good thing about the Scripture is that the Scripture gives us all kinds of examples of how Jesus went about doing things, about how the disciples went about doing things, and how we can kind of take those things in and make them understandable for ourselves. And so what I thought I'd look at is in John chapter 1, it's where Jesus was calling the disciples to himself. He's already called a couple, and Jesus then decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. He found Philip and he said, follow me. And what I want you to do in this, in this passage is I want you to pay attention to the interaction and I want you to pay attention to the movement of this passage, how it goes from one thing to another, but really pay attention to that interaction because Jesus found Philip. Jesus found Philip and he invited him. And as a result right? Philip followed. And so Philip, he was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then Philip, who was found by Jesus, now found Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found, you're in a word very much here, found. We have, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Philip said, listen, we found. We found the one that was spoken of in the word. We found the one that the word of God had been talking about. We have found the one. And more than that, this one has a name. And that name is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip said, we found the one that, that we have been, that was written about, the one that we've been looking for, that we found him in his name. His name is Jesus. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because here's the thing about Nathaniel. Nathaniel knew that, that Nazareth was a certain type of place. He says, I know that place. I know Nazareth, and nothing good comes from there because I know the type. I know full and well this type, this kind of people, and nothing good can come from this. And I think that might be the issue that you and I run into, run up against, is that people have heard of Christians. People have heard of Christians, and they're like, listen, I know Christians. I've heard of Christians. I've interacted with them. I see what they do on social media. I see the way that they interact in the community. And let me tell you something that I've known about some of these Christians is that they're hypocrites. They say one thing, yet do another. They hold someone to a standard that they themselves don't even hold. And beyond being hypocritical, they're judgmental. They're all the time looking down on other people, telling them how they should live their lives. Listen, as far as I'm concerned, a Christian is no different than any other kind of group trying to put their rules down 
on me. And we run into this issue. But I think the very reason that we run into this issue is the very reason that we need to look inside ourselves. And we need to ask, am I a hypocrite? Do, do I hold others to a standard that I can't meet? Am I judgmental? Do I, do I look down on others? More important than that, do I reflect the gospel of Jesus or the hypocritical believer? And we say believer in quotes because this believer is someone that says that they know Jesus, but their lives say differently. And so when we ask this question, do I reflect the gospel to Jesus or am I a hypocritical believer? We ask that question, is my message pure? Does my message actually point to Jesus or does it point to something else that distracts, that takes away? And Philip pointed Nathaniel to Jesus. He didn't say, hey, hey, Nathaniel, listen, I'm going out with these guys. They're doing a lot of cool things and we're, we're going to see what happens with this Jesus dude. But come hang out with us. Philip said to Nathaniel, I have found the one. I found him. And then he offered an invitation to Nathaniel to see what he had found. He said, listen, Philip said, come and see. He said, listen, uh, Nathaniel, I, I, I don't really want to get into this with you right now. Why don't you just come give it a try? Why don't you just come on, check it out for yourself, come see if this Jesus guy is who I say he is. Don't just take my word for it. I want you to come and see. I want you to experience this for what I have found. I have found a person that matches what Moses and the prophets have said. I've found this person. But don't just take my word for it. Come. Come and see. But don't check your brain at the door. Don't, don't just take it for my word. Bring your whole self. Bring your mind. Bring your questions. I want you to come. And I want you to see, I want you to come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming. He saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of Nathanael, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, and you're like, how can I get someone to compliment me? Just like that. If you're like me, you're like, I don't even know what that means. But Jesus, in this moment, did not just see Nathaniel. He didn't just physically see him coming. He saw Nathaniel. And you know the difference between being seen and being seen, right? He saw Nathaniel and said, Nathaniel, I see that you are a seeker of the truth. I see that you are a person that doesn't mess around in matters of faith. I see that you look for the truth. And that you're not going to be satisfied with anything that is less than. Nathaniel, you are an Israelite of Israelites, and there is nothing in you that is self-seeking in you coming. And Nathaniel said to Jesus, how do you know me? Not, 
how do you know my name? But how do you know this about me? How, how do you know this inner part of me? How do you know the things that I desired, the ones things that I want to see happen? How do you know what my intention is? And Jesus answered him. And he said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> to that we think, okay, well, this is great. Jesus just physically saw him under this location. This isn't what Jesus is telling him in this moment. He, he may have seen him under a tree, but the real truth of this statement is, is found in what does this mean about who Nathaniel is? Because Jesus had just told Nathaniel that he is an Israelite of Israelites, that there's no deceit in him, that there's something special about Nathaniel. And then to say that I saw you under the fig tree talked about the leaning of Nathaniel's heart. It talked about how he was a, a, an Israelite of Israelites, but that he was one that was looking for Messiah. Because in the scriptures, the, waiting under the fig tree was a symbol of waiting to see Messiah. It was somebody that was searching, looking, expecting to see when Messiah would come. So Jesus said, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael said, like you would say, right? Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. All because he saw you under a tree? So I have a question for you. How do you know if you've found what you're looking for? How do you know if you've encountered what you're truly seeking? How do you know that you've found the truth when you're looking for the truth? How do you know that the deepest need that you have has been addressed? Nathaniel found it, and Jesus answered him from this. He said, because I said to you, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He says, listen, Nathaniel, there's something different about this interaction that you're soon going to understand. Nathaniel, I am more than just words that are being spoken. I'm more than the message that I'm preaching. Everything that you're going to experience is going to be well more than words because I already know which way your heart leans. He says, Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see greater things than me just telling you the what direction that your heart leans. In fact, Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things. You're going to see the change that is brought when Jesus intersects in the lives of others. You're going to see what it looks like when people go from believing to following. You're going to see, yes, physical healing. You're going to see miracles. You're going to see all manner of things. But maybe the very most important thing that you will ever see, Nathaniel, is the transformational power of Jesus at work in people. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be those that would follow Jesus, that would come in his proximity, the ones that would just come in proximity to Jesus for the show. They would come to see what he would do next, to hear the words that he was going to say because they loved to hear the Pharisees get burned. Where they come, there's going to be people that come just for the good feelings that they get when they're around. 
when they're close to the people that are following Jesus. There's going to be people that are there for the show, the ones that are just there for the feeling. And those people may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they're no followers because the followers of Jesus were transformed. The followers of Jesus were no longer the same. The followers of Jesus lived differently. They spoke differently. They had a, a different way of, of speaking and carrying themselves in the world. They felt different. They began, they began to be like Jesus, and they began to understand what Jesus would say later, that they, he was calling them into a life that was more, a life that was better. Jesus was telling him, listen, you're not just going to change the content of your speech. You're going to change your very life. And at the end of the day, you're going to follow me, which means obey me. You're going to, for the sake of me, for the sake of one, do away with every excuse that you have. Because I don't know about you, I probably do, but how many of you make up excuses to why you can't do something you don't want to do? Oh, come on now. Everybody in this room has done that. In fact, you were doing it right then. I don't want everybody to see me. <laughs> we can make up the best excuses, right? In fact, here's the problem. We start making up excuses. We look in the mirror and we say the thing that we are making up as an excuse, and then we believe ourselves. We have deceived ourselves into believing our own excuses. And we make them up. And we make up all kinds of reasons why we can't go here, can't do that, can't be this, why we can't do a lot of things. And, and here's the problem is that some of them actually feel pretty legit after we've said them a lot over the years, right? In fact, here's kind of where the excuses fall in line because we start saying things like this, I'm so busy. I'm just so busy. I can't do the things that I hear. I can't do the things that I'm challenged to do because I'm so busy. Because do you know how fast life moves? Do you know how much there is to do? Do you know how behind I am? And everybody's like, yeah, we know how behind you are. We live, we find ourselves living in this mode where we're reacting to things because that's all we have space to do because we can no longer be proactive because we're just dealing with fire after fire. Fires begin to take precedent over the things that are most important. In fact, we find ourselves going from one thing that's an emergency to another, and we might pat the heads of our family, or we might say hello to somebody else, but in the midst of it all, we're just going from one thing to another, and we never find time to breathe, and we never time, find time to actually make important decisions because our decisions are always under the gun. Our decisions are always because we're so busy. I don't have time. I'm so busy, I don't have time. And besides, listen, someone else can do it. Someone else can be that person in the life of one person, right? Someone else can tell them about Jesus. Someone else can go do the things that need to be done. 
Didn't you hear how busy my life is? Surely there's someone who has more time than I do. Surely there's someone who has vacation. Surely there's someone who's retired that can do it. Surely there's someone else that has the time to do the things that I'm too busy to do in the first place. Is this starting to feel familiar? Besides, this one person is one of millions. This is one of millions of people who need to know about Jesus. What's it going to take for that one person to become one in a million for you? What's it going to take for them to become one in a million? In other words, what's it going to take for them to become valuable to you? Pastor, you're making me feel bad. But I'll tell you what. I tell you what, I'll be more serious about it after I get through this season. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll do that when, when it's not so busy at work. I'll, I'll do that on the other side of my health issue. I'll, I'll do that when my relationship with my spouse is better. I'll learn to obey, obey Jesus. I'll, I'll learn to obey Jesus after college. Oh, did I say after college? I meant after I got married. I, I, I learned to follow Jesus and obey Jesus after I get married. Oh, did I say that? I meant after we have kids. Maybe after we have kids, then maybe, maybe I'll learn how to live that kind of a life. Because there's a season for everything, but there never seems to be a season for obedience. Following Jesus means that we obey and we become. Following Jesus means obedience and becoming like Jesus. Obedience to him and becoming like him. Amen. Pastor, it's been a rough season. I'm super busy. Someone else could do it besides, listen, here's the bottom line. I can't take any more rejection. It seems everywhere I go, I find rejection, and I can't take it. So I tell them about Jesus. I tell them about what Jesus has done for me, and then they tell me no. What then? I can't take it. Did you know that most people's resistance to the gospel has absolutely nothing to do with you. Now, if you're living in such a way that denies the gospel, it might. But people's resistance to the gospel normally has nothing to do with you because it's all seated in their past. More than 70% of people are open to a conversation. They're open to listening and hearing, for you listening and hearing what they have to say. They're open to a conversation. And maybe it's that openness that leads us to this next one because, listen, that w the world, it's just become so open-minded. 
The world says that there's so many different things, so many different paths, so many different things that are true. You know, this is true for you, but not true for me. But, you know, just go and seek your own very much truth. The world is so open-minded. But then I read the scriptures and Jesus says stuff like, there's only one way. That doesn't sound very tolerant. And when I say there's only one way, that means that someone else can't come, and that doesn't feel very loving. But I read what the scriptures say, and Jesus says that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. I read that. And Jesus said there's only one way. And he said it's a narrow gate. A narrow gate that leads to life, but a broad path that leads to destruction. He says those things. And he said there's only one way. This might be the hardest question I ask you today. How much, how much do you have to hate someone not to share the love of Jesus with them? Listen, no one's going to know. No one will know if I do or I don't. No one will know if I shared the truth of Jesus with with somebody. No one's going to know because I didn't tell somebody that I was going to tell someone because there's no one seeing to me. I live my Christian life without any accountability. I live my life and no one knows what happens when I'm not in this room. If you lack accountability in your life, you lack an accountability relationship that holds you to sharing the good news of Jesus with others, that holds you to being active in your faith, then yeah, no one's going to know because no one's seen to you. And last time I checked, that's not very Christian. Listen. Pastor, you start talking like this, and you start saying things like this, and I kind of feel odd inviting somebody to church because this is going to happen, right? Did you know that statistics say that a majority of people would come to church if actually somebody asked them? People want to be invited places. You don't want to show up without an invitation. Have you ever done that? You ever walked into a place and no one knew you were coming and you weren't sure they wanted you to be there? Yeah, okay. How different was it when somebody says, hey, this is my guest? Your entire world changes right in front of you, right? You know, the bottom line about a church is, though, that we should be inviting every time, right? And when somebody walks in, they should feel like we invited them whether we did or didn't. But here's the thing, when you, when you invite someone, especially when you're at work and you say, you know what, I'm finally going to do it, I'm going to finally invite so-and-so to church, and you say, hey, listen, uh, my, on Sunday, my family, we go to church, and I'd love to have you come with us. Would you be interested? And they say, you know what, I was going to ask you the very same thing. And then you found, found out that they were just as scared to invite you to church as you were to invite them. Pastor, I'll invite somebody. I'll do that. 
but I'm just not good at these gospel sharing methods. You got the three circles, and I'm not good at drawing, and I don't know what those squiggly things actually mean. You got the Roman road, but then I got lost somewhere on the road and couldn't find my way out. You got four spiritual laws, and I'm not sure what those are anymore. Here's the problem. We have a lot of methods, right? We, we have, in Christendom, we have created so many methods and so many ways and so many diagrams and so all of this stuff to maybe help you and make it easier for you. We push it out. We give you stickers. We do all kinds of things. We do methods and diagrams for sharing the truth of Jesus. But the most effective, the best way that you can share Jesus is to make it personal. Make it personal, not methodical. Make it personal, not about how good you can draw. Make it personal. Say, listen, I once was this way, but now because of Jesus, I am this way. I was once lost and alone, and somebody introduced me to Jesus. And I made Jesus the king of my life. And now, because of that, I have family in the church. I have, I'm part of the family of God. I'm no longer alone. And more than that, my heavenly Father said that he would never leave me or forsake me. Make it personal. Sounds good, but nobody else does it. No one else in the church shares the gospel you want some more statistics? Statistics say that it takes 85 people, 85 church goers to reach one person who's not saved. The ratio is 85 to 1. How many of you think that's a good ratio? I certainly don't. That means that in this room we have the opportunity to reach about three people. How do you feel about that? What will it take to lower the ratio? What will it take to get it closer to one to one? I'll tell you what it takes. It takes passion. It takes passion for sharing, and it takes your relationship with Jesus being personal but not private. Your relationship will always be personal if it's a real and lasting relationship with Jesus. But if it's a real and lasting relationship with Jesus, it is not private. You say, listen, that's probably the bottom line because I don't know what to share because I've not found it yet. Listen, I've come to church my whole life and I can't tell you the first thing about what following Jesus looks like because I've never experienced it, and I've never grown. I came to know Jesus in vacation Bible school or at an event in, in high school or as, as a person much later in life, but I've come to church because that's what you're supposed to do. And I know the songs, and I can sing them. I know the Scripture, and I can say it. But I've never grown I've never got to the place where, where I got beyond just the words. 
Because when I gave my life to Jesus, I never repented. I never knew the gravity of my sin. I never knew that the things that I did in my life, the things that were separating me from God, that they had a cost. Never repented. And if you've never repented, you've never accepted. And then you say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So how do you know if you found life? How do you know if you found faith in Jesus? How do you know if you found faith that results in following? How do you move from believing to following? Jesus gives us an example in a parable, a parable about one item of great value. Jesus talks about this one item, this one thing that we would give everything to obtain this one most valuable item that was so valuable that we would cash in all of our retirement, that we would sell all of our tools, that we would give everything that we have, change our entire life for it, move everything around, cash it all in in order to gain it. Jesus talks about a life-changing discovery. Here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, stumbled across, found it, and covered it up. This is a great find. This is one of the, the biggest finds of his entire life, and this is not dishonest gain. This, this finding great treasure that had been forgotten and lost by other generations, this man stumbled across it and found it. We have an entire generation of people that don't even know what they're looking for because it's been covered up and lost. Are we going to be the ones that uncover it and show the great value of it? This man, he found it, he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has and he goes and buys that field so that treasure now belongs to him. And this is truly good news because no one in his family knew about the treasure. No one in the family, no one in the area knew anything about it. But he knew one thing was for certain. When he found it, he had to have it. He had to make sure that the treasure was received and then celebrated with joy. Because for him, the gain far outweighs the cost. Jesus said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. A merchant who's in search of the best. This is a person that knows things about things, right? They know things about pearls. They know things about what makes them good, what makes them bad, what makes them desirable, and what makes them not desirable. This person knows good things, but he's not yet found the things, right? And he found a pearl of great value. And he went and he sold all that he had, and he bought it. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is worth everything that we have. Once we discover it, 
Once we stumble upon it, once we have found it through our searching, once we have sought it out and discovered it and obtained it, that we will have joy. We will find joy in the obtaining of the kingdom of heaven. Because the focus of this parable is the extreme value of the gospel, the extreme value of knowing Christ. Whether we stumble upon it, or whether we were already in search of it, there's nothing more valuable than possession of the kingdom of heaven. So how do you rate your passion for the gospel of Jesus? How is your passion? Do you have great joy are you joyful about obtaining this treasure of immense value? Are you willing to pay a cost? Or are you leaning into excuses? Will you be the one for your one? Will you be the one that says you're not one of a million you're one in a million. As Christians, our lives are an example. As Christians, we are, as Paul says, like a letter. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show, you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us. Your life is like a letter that is written by Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Your life is a letter from God. The words that are written on that letter are written by the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. The way that you live your life is a letter to others. And that letter is given, written by Christ. If you're a Christ follower, that letter is written by Christ on your heart and people read your mail. What kind of mail do they receive? If your life is a letter from Christ, what kind of letter are they opening? Is it one that is filled with joy, that is stirred up with passion? Because you know that you can tell. You know that you can tell what kind of person you're dealing with before they ever say one word. It's the letter that's written on your heart. Is it stirred up with the passion of Christ? Is the letter of your heart born out of repentance? Is the letter on your heart written out of a transformed life? If your heart 
is not written as a letter of passion and repentance and transformation. Maybe today, you're my one. Maybe today, you're the one that needs to know right now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you have truly repented and accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you are my one, you're one of two kinds of people today that I'm talking directly to right now. Either you've been a believer, and I'm going to use that in quotes, a believer for a long time, but you've never learned to follow. You know how to look like you believe, but your life never follows. You're not transformed. You come and you... You, you're there for a while, but, but all of this stuff of God, it never really seems to stick. And you kind of, you know the truth. You know what it says. But you never felt the need for repentance. You never felt the need of identifying those things in you that aren't of God. Those sins that separate you from God. You never repented. And when I, when I say that word, it means, it means that you've never recognized and said, Heavenly Father, I need your forgiveness. I need forgiveness and I repent. That means I turn away. I leave these things here because I want you. I want the kingdom of heaven. I want the power of transformation. I want Christ to be written on my heart. You don't know the joy of the kingdom of heaven because you're still holding on to the very things you need to lay down. Let me say that again. You don't have the joy of the kingdom of heaven because you're still holding on to the very things you need to lay down. And today is the day that you should lay it all down and receive the joy of Jesus, receive the joy of the kingdom of God to move from being someone who just believes to somebody who follows Jesus. Or today you may be my one because you have never laid it down. You have never given your heart, your mind, your soul over to who Christ is, that you've never followed Jesus. You've never actually said that you believe. And if this is you, you've come, you've saw, and now you need to understand that you need to follow. You need to follow Jesus and accept his invitation to repentance and true life. If you're not my one today, who's your one? When they read the letter of Christ written on your heart, what do they read? 